How many of you have been on a treasure hunt? Raise your hand. Alright, a few of you. Alright, a lot of you. Good. Casey and I are looking forward to the day when we can have a, a pirate birthday for Bennett and do a treasure hunt with all the kids. You know, treasure hunts are a lot of fun, aren't they? Uh, you get out your map and you're looking for the X and you're, you're traveling all around. I remember my, my parents, when I was a little kid, they would do a treasure hunt for our, uh, our Easter basket full of goodies. And we would wake up in the morning and... Uh, I, I thought it was a difficult uh, treasure map, but it turns out that there was actually jelly beans leading all the way to my, uh, my Easter basket, so it turns out it wasn't that difficult at all. But uh, treasure hunts are a lot of fun, and we, the kids get excited about it, we get excited about it, it's something that we all look forward to. Well, today I want to talk about a different kind of, a different kind of hunt. I want to talk about hunting for the kingdom of God. And in today's message, in Mark chapter 4, as you turn there, we're going to be looking at a different kind of treasure hunt. One in which we get no less joy from. One in which we find no less excitement from. Because when we find the treasure of the Kingdom of God, we recognize the great value that comes with this treasure. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 21. This will be the last study in Mark uh, as we uh, enter the Christmas season. We're going to be turning to a Christmas series. But I wanted to do one more study in the Gospel of Mark as we've been going through it. And I want to begin today in verses 21 to 34. And the focus of our teaching today is finding the Kingdom of God understanding the Kingdom of God, recognizing the value that it is to all of us who participate in it. Take a look at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. A collection of short parables from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, And He said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set... Excuse me, is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens... Immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown in the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, He spoke the Word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, He did not speak to them. And when they were alone, 
he explained all things to his disciples. The title of my message today is Going on a Kingdom Hunt. Going on a Kingdom Hunt. Let's open in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, O Lord, as we enter Your Word today, as we approach Your precious truth, I pray, Lord, that we would encounter the treasure that lies therein. I pray, Lord, that as we, uh, as we read through these teachings of Christ, that we would begin to see clearly the wonderful and valuable and precious treasure that the Kingdom of God is to those who participate in it. Father, may we, like the joy that the children had just moments ago in looking for treasure, may we also find tremendous joy and satisfaction and contentment in knowing that we have found and are participating in Your Kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let me get my water. I always leave this down here these days. Take a look at verse 21 again. Verse 21. It says this, And He said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. Now, Jesus' questions here in verse 21 are quite obvious, aren't they? Uh, he's asking some rhetorical questions, and the answers to these questions are r- rather obvious. First question Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or a bed? Answer No, of course not. Why wouldn't anybody light a lamp and put it under a measuring basket or put it right under a bed or a couch as it might be understood in Greek? Why would anybody do that? No. Secondly, is it not to be set on a lampstand? Answer, yes, of course it is. That is the purpose of the lamp. The light that the lamp gives is meant to be put up on a stand so that it can give light to all the house. But while those answers are a bit obvious, what might be a little less obvious is what Jesus means by this illustration of the lamp. Who or what is the lamp of verse 21? And what hidden thing, what secret thing of verse 22 is about to be revealed by this lamp, this light? As we've gone through our studies in Mark, Something secret, something hidden, something mysterious has been brought to light in the person of Jesus Christ. What has been hidden in the past, what was secret in the past, what was the mystery in the past was none other than the very kingdom of God in the Gospel of Mark. And therefore, the lamp that is revealing the secret of the kingdom of God is none other than the person of Jesus Christ Himself. As one theologian put it, this is Mark's way of saying that Jesus is the light of the world in verse 21. A statement we find in the lips of Jesus Himself in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light or the lamp of the world. And He's been placed on the lampstand by His incarnation, by His coming to earth, and by His earthly ministry through His teaching, through His preaching. 
And He is revealing. He is making known the Kingdom of God to those who listen to Him. To be very clear, the Kingdom of God is what is hidden or secret. Jesus Christ is the lamp that reveals the Kingdom. Now, some of you have probably looked at verse 22 historically and thought that it referred to something else. Uh, Some suggest that verse 22 refers to uh, perhaps hidden sins in a person's life. Sins that will be brought to light by the person of Jesus Christ. They suggest that all secret sins we commit will one day be, be manifested by the light of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, that interpretation really doesn't fit the context of these parables. Uh, while it is true that no sin is hidden from God, while it is true that no sin will be made secret before the Lord Jesus Christ, this text is not communicating that point. There are others that do, but this one isn't communicating that point. What is hidden in this parable and what has been hidden and what Jesus is now beginning to reveal throughout the Gospel of Mark is the Kingdom of God. That's what was secret. That was what was such a mystery to the people. What is this Kingdom? What's the nature of this Kingdom? And Jesus is revealing this Kingdom. Jesus is the lamp revealing the Kingdom. Now, Jesus goes on to remind His listeners just how important it is that they earnestly, earnestly listen to the teaching about the kingdom. And those who listen well will receive the kingdom in abundance. Take a look at verses 23 to 25. He says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Be mindful of how you hear. That was the theme of our message last week. That was the theme of the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four soils in Mark 4, 1-20. Be mindful how you hear. How you hear will largely affect the amount of wisdom, the amount of insight, the amount of knowledge, the amount of understanding that you receive from God based on how you are listening to His Word. Are you listening to it regularly? Are you listening to it openly? Are you listening to it with a humble heart? Are you listening to it looking to change? Or are you reading the Word and saying, eh, I know all these stories. What, possibly, what, po- what else could I possibly learn? If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a command in Greek. Take heed what you hear. That's a command in Greek. Be mindful of how you are listening. And Jesus uh, uses uh, really an interesting teaching technique to communicate His point here right after this. He uses uh, which, which is understood by teachers and grammarians as alliteration. You ever heard of alliteration? You might have uh, noticed this uh, little phrase, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Say that ten times fast. Why is that alliteration? It all begins with the letter P. Alliteration can also be... Uh, when we use like a sound, 
Okay? Not just a letter, but a sound that is repeated. Well, we don't see it in English, in our English Bibles. We see it a little bit in parts, but uh, it's kind of impossible to translate. But in the Greek, in verse uh, 24, in the Greek, we see Jesus using alliteration, and He's using it to make a memorable statement to the people who are hearing it. This is what He says in Greek. He says, "In ha metro metrete metresthetai umim. Notice the three M's. All of the same root word. Why do I bring up this point? Jesus is saying, remember this. Remember this. With what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. I'm using a memorable statement, Jesus says, so that you will remember this. The amount of time, the quality, the perseverance, the dedication, the loyalty that you put on this will also be the same quality, will be the same kind of life that you can expect to have with God in your relationship with Him. The amount of effort you put into this will largely represent the kind of relationship you will have with God Almighty. And thus, the kind of relationship you will have in the life to come, in the kingdom to come. He uses alliteration to make this memorable. To you who hear, more will be given. Literally, it will be added to you, the hearing ones. Be a hearing one. Good listeners will be rewarded. Those who routinely and openly sit before God's Word and seek its truth for life and for godliness will experience a greater sense of God's presence in their life. Now, this does not mean that they will be financially blessed. This does not mean that they will be freed from all kinds of trials or hardships or suffering. This does not mean that those who pay especially good heed to God's Word will be liberated from all kinds of hurt or pain. It does not mean that. But what it does mean is that God will be especially intimate with you. He'll provide comfort, peace, and security much more than you could ever imagine Him to. The believer will especially sense God's presence with them both in the trials of life and in the day-to-day routine, if they are stayed on this. That's Jesus' point. Listen to my words carefully and you will experience intimacy with me. It is not unlike what James says in chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Notice verse 25. It says, But for whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now the first clause is virtually synonymous with verse 24. To whoever has, to him more will be given. But then Jesus adds a warning to those who do not hear, to those who refuse to listen regularly and openly to God's Word. And this is what He says about them. He says, Whoever does not have, does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. 
I'm not going to lie to you, these are, this is actually a very difficult phrase to interpret. Uh, you, you're going to find Christians interpreting this in a variety of, of ways. Uh, it's difficult to understand if Jesus is speaking in a salvific sense. Is he talking about salvation here? Is he talking about uh, the day-to-day life uh, with God that, that those who, who, who are not seeking after him will somehow the, 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 the quality of life with God will be taken away from them? Um, I wrestled with this more than anything else in the sermon this week. And uh, it seems to me, it seems to me, and I, I'm open to correction here, but it seems to me, based on the context of the passage, the thing that is possessed here, the thing that is owned here, the thing that is grabbed hold of and that the person either possesses or does not possess is the knowledge of the kingdom of God. It's the knowledge of the kingdom of God that some have and the knowledge of the kingdom of God that some do not have. And it says in verse 25 that these folks do not have something. I would argue that that would be the revelation or the understanding of the revelation of the kingdom of God. And so we may be safe in assuming that Jesus is distinguishing here between those who seek the kingdom and find it and those who do not seek it and thus do not have it. Jesus says even what He has will be taken away from Him. That is to say, even what little truth, what little knowledge, what little general revelation this person has already come to understand will be lost or will be meaningless without a full revelation of the kingdom of God without a sincere desire to hunt for the kingdom. Jesus now turns His attention to another parable in the kingdom. This time He discusses just how the kingdom grows. How it develops. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 26-29. to It says this, Then Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, And the seed should sprout and grow, and he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in his sickle, because the harvest has come. Have you ever planted something? Have you ever... grabbed a pot of soil and added some seed and began to water it and you go to bed and you wake up the next day and and a little sprout has sprung. It doesn't happen in a day. We all know that. But over time, you, you go to bed and you wake up and there it is. The first sprout from the soil. You didn't see it happen. You weren't... Uh, sitting day and night watching the, the pot and waiting for the sprout to spring up, that would be meaningless. Uh, you can't see this. It's imperceptible. It's something that happens, happens over, over a good deal of time and, and the human eye cannot conceive or perceive of it happening. And so we, we water it, we do our part, but we go to bed and we wake up and all of a sudden there it is. That is how... Jesus is likening the kingdom of God. 
He says, a man scatters seed, he goes to sleep, and he wakes up and he finds a sprout. And he himself does not know how it grew, how it came to be. It just happened. It wasn't his doing. Nevertheless, the sprout grows up, yields a crop. First the blade, then the head, then the full grain. And when the grain ripens, the farmer takes his sickle to the crop and realizes and achieves the harvest. What is all of this illustrating about the kingdom of God? Plainly and simply, it is this. The kingdom of God grows differently than other earthly kingdoms. The kingdom of God grows differently than other earthly kingdoms. You see, the kingdoms of this earth, you look at the United States of America, you look at Russia, you look at China, you look at Iraq. These kingdoms, the growth of these kingdoms are easily perceptible, aren't they? We can look at it with the human eye and say, now there's a kingdom that's on the move. Or there's a kingdom that's not on the move. The kingdom of God, however, does not come with observation. The kingdoms of this earth are ruled by means of physical force. The kingdom of God is ruled by means of the Spirit of God who leads and guides its citizens. The kingdoms of this earth are based, are evaluated based on the size of their territory, the amount of assets they have, their economy, the amount of military force and strength that they have. But the kingdom of God doesn't contain any physical territory. It is not to be appraised in terms of dollars and cents. It's not evaluated based on anything but hearts attuned to the Spirit of God. It is measured in terms of grace, mercy, peace, and love that proceeds from Christ and exists in its members. Do not think of God's kingdom like the ancient Roman Empire. Do not think of God's kingdom like the present United States of America. It is not like these kinds of kingdoms. It is not a political kingdom in its present form. It is not a military power. These are things that do not mark the kingdom of God at this time. But the harvest of the kingdom of God is nevertheless found in human hearts made whole and complete by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled, Jesus says. Don't be fooled if you're not visibly seeing My kingdom growing. Like the farmer planting seed in the soil in the pot, he doesn't see it grow. He wakes up one day and says, wow, look at that. And in the same way, Jesus says, don't be fooled if you do not visibly see tremendous growth or physical, uh, a physical demonstration, if you will, of My kingdom occurring. Because My kingdom grows differently. My kingdom grows within the human hearts who are attuned to the Spirit of God within them, who showcase love, mercy, peace, grace, truth to the world around them. That's the growth of the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled, Jesus says. Though my kingdom may seem imperceptible to some and seemingly insignificant, it will soon become the greatest kingdom of all. And this is precisely Jesus' point as we enter the next parable. Take a look at verses 30 to 32. It says this, 
Then Jesus said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. God's kingdom is like a small, insignificant mustard seed. A tiny seed, one of the smallest of all the seeds. And when it is planted and takes root in the soil, an interesting thing happens. That seed, that herb, the mustard seed, when it is planted, it grows up with such measure and with such force and with such size such that it is greater than all the other herbs of the earth. Um, many of you probably, uh, well, some of you have seen a mustard bush. How many of you have seen a mustard bush? Raise your hand. A few of you. Probably not many of you have seen a mustard uh, bush. Or I should say field, really. Um, I would compare it to, uh, and, and not, not so much in the type, but in the way that it grows. I would compare it to a bougainvillea bush. If you know what a bougainvillea is, probably a few more of you do. How does a bougainvillea grow? Everywhere. Scott knows. Scott, have you been hacking them down at your house? Bougainvillea, when that thing's planted, that thing grows tremendously. We had one out here uh, not too long ago in front of the barn, uh, and Dan Rob, our, our last youth pastor, just took he took a hacksaw to it, and he was going at that thing for days, days trying to get that thing uprooted. The same is true of the mustard bush, the mustard uh, herb, we might say, the mustard field. When that mustard seed is planted, it is obnoxious almost in its growth. It is a tremendously fast-growing herb. And some scholars speculate that Jesus used the mustard field or the mustard herb specifically. That He avoided maybe a more common tree, the cedar of Lebanon, which is cited in Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 31, and it talks about birds coming under the the branches of the cedars of Lebanon. In Ezekiel 17, it's referring to Israel. So it's very interesting that Jesus uses the mustard bush. Why? Perhaps because He wanted to suggest that not only does the kingdom of God, which begins small, grow up into a gigantic, huge, influential kind of kingdom so that some may nest in its shade, but others look upon that bush, they look upon that herb, and they see nothing but an obnoxious herb. An obnoxious field. One that they cannot get rid of. Isn't it interesting that some responded to the kingdom in that way in Jesus' day? They looked upon the kingdom of God that Jesus was offering and said, that is not the kingdom. That is a perversion of the kingdom and they rejected it. They wanted to see a Messiah who was on the, on the throne, who would usurp Caesar, who would overtake Rome. And when they heard about a so-called Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming and saying, I'm not going to rule in that way, they said, that's obnoxious. We don't want any part of that kingdom. But yet still, many, many, were able 
to come under the influence of that kingdom and to find rest and to nest in its branches. How about the uh, indication of the birds there in verse 32? I know that uh, those of you who have studied the word well are aware that birds are often used in the Old Testament with reference to God's enemies. Also, uh, earlier in Mark 4, we see that birds are mentioned by Jesus Himself in the parable of the sower, the four soils, and they represent who? Satan Himself. And so it's interesting that Jesus would use birds here in a positive light if, if He is, or is He using it in a negative light? And if so, how do we reconcile that with the flow of this parable? I want to say very clearly that Jesus does not use the the birds in a uniformly evil way in his teaching. Take, for instance, Matthew 6, 26, where Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So in that passage, Jesus is referring to birds in a positive light. All that is to say, based on the context of Mark 4, it seems much more likely, much more likely, that the birds are reaping the benefit of the expanding kingdom of God. They are given relief by its shade. They are themselves being influenced by this kingdom and are becoming citizens of it as represented by the nest that they build under its branches. They're residing within God's kingdom, getting shelter, peace, security, and comfort. It seems to me that the birds in this parable represent those who come under the influence of the kingdom and find rest and peace and hope. What's the point? Though the kingdom of God begins small, it affords great benefit, security, and relief to those who partake of it. Though the kingdom begins small like a mustard seed, it grows and affords great benefit, security, and relief to those who partake of it. Verse 33. And with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Notice that phrase, as they were able to hear it. The theme here is so cohesive. The unity of this passage, of Mark chapter 4 in particular, this entire chapter, is so cohesive. We began Mark 4 with a focus on listening carefully. Listen well to the Word. Listen earnestly with an open heart, a humble heart, and you'll be benefited from that. And here we come toward the end of chapter 4, and it says that Jesus spoke to them such as they were able to hear it. As they were able to understand it. Jesus did not go off and give them revelation and give them understanding and give them teaching that He knew would not be received because of the receptivity of their hearts, because of their understanding and their ability to comprehend God's truth. Instead, He gave truth as they were able to hear it. May I suggest God divvies out truth in the same way today? You're looking for wisdom. 
You're looking for knowledge. You're looking for a greater understanding of the Word of God. May I suggest it has everything to do with the receptivity of your ears. Are you listening carefully? Because God is ready and willing to give you wisdom and to give you understanding, to give you more knowledge if you're ready to hear it. If you're desiring to hear it. But the pompous heart, the proud person, God does not reveal His wisdom and His truth to them. And it becomes self-evident in their lives. Their pride and their pompousness become self-evident. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me note again as we begin to bring this to a close. Jesus did not speak in parables to conceal the truth. He did so to conceal it from those who were not interested in hearing it. Jesus was not purposefully concealing truth from them. That's not the purpose of the parables. He spoke in parables to conceal it from those who did not want to hear it in the first place. Not everyone understood Jesus' parables, even those who did want to hear it. And even the disciples often did not comprehend their truth. And so we see in verse 34 that to those who sought out understanding, most especially His disciples, Jesus would pull them aside and say, this is what it means. This is the significance of the story that I just told. And He would explain it to them. Let's move to a a closing thought as we um, close out the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks now as we enter the Advent season. I want to leave us with this thought. Folks, earthly kingdoms, businesses, organizations are generally evaluated in terms of the quantity of people, assets, territory, etc., Jesus measures the kingdom of God in vastly different ways. Vastly different ways. As we participate in God's kingdom today, may we evaluate the success of God's kingdom, both around us and in our lives, in terms of how Christ measures victory. That looks like regularly and earnestly listening to God's Word. That looks like letting the Holy Spirit lead and guide us. That looks like seeking to change our ways when the Spirit reveals truth to us through The Word of God. That's what success, victory, the harvest looks like in the kingdom of God. That is how you and I encounter what God intends for us in the kingdom. It is these kinds of elements that help us experience the richness of the kingdom. And if you are looking for a more complete Christian life, this is the road map. This is the treasure map that will lead you to the precious treasure of the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are participating in that kingdom right now. In its present spiritual form. And as you participate in it, I urge you to participate fully in it. To not measure its success by earthly measures, but to measure it by your devotion to the Word, your humility toward the Spirit of God within you, your desire to change your ways when confronted with truth. That is a successful Christian. That is one who is 
participating in the richness that the kingdom of God affords. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, Your kingdom is a treasure. and We seek to not just find this treasure, but to experience it fully. To experience all that is to come with the precious value of the kingdom of God. Lord, I, I, I pray that as we begin the Christmas season, that everyone here, everyone who comes to coast on this day, would walk out knowing that they are participants in the kingdom of God. Father, that comes by expressing faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And that participation is enriched, it is rooted, it is grounded when it is focused on Your Word. Humble toward Your Spirit within us. When it is coupled with a desire to change, to repent of sin, to turn toward holiness, love, grace. I pray, Lord, that You would change lives. That is victory in Your kingdom. And that is how we will measure Coast Bible Church, by changed lives, by Your Spirit's power. I pray, Lord, that You would change marriages, that You would change families, You would change our children, that You would cause us all to become more like Jesus Christ. In His name we pray these things. Amen.